June 15th, 2018, and this is your episode 151 of That Percussion. I'm your host, Casey Cangelosi, and with me as usual are Laurel Black. Hi. And we've got a guest co-host back with us, Caleb Pickering's back. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how's it going? And Ben Charles is here. What's up, Ben? Hi, everybody. Doing well. So, you guys, we got to dive right in because I think there's a lot to talk about and a lot of questions and a lot of things to discuss with our guest. He's one of the most well-known names in contemporary classical music with all sorts of awards and honors for his compositions. He's certainly a household name amongst percussionists with his commission roster, including powerhouse performer names like Evelyn Glennie, the Jew Percussion Group, and our buddy Pedro Caniero. His music was heard literally by billions of people in 2004 when he composed music for the opening and closing ceremonies of the Athens Olympics. So you guys, this is John Sapis. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Nice to be here with you all. You gave us a really, really cool view of your your parents' home there in Greece. Can you just tell us about where you're coming from right now? Sure. So I'm I'm about 30 kilometers out of Thessaloniki, which is the the second biggest city in, in Greece. And my dad built a house on a cliff by the sea. So whenever I come here, uh, the view is is pretty amazing. You know, it's the Aegean Ocean and um, I come here a lot and just kind of defrag and plan things. And uh, I've written some music here, but the problem is it's too close to the beach, you know. So you, you start with really good intentions, but you end up down at the beach uh, having some pretty good food. So it's not a great place to get a lot done, I have to say. And you have a view of a very special place from where you're at, right? Can you see? Yeah, 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 yeah. From the roof here, it's a great view of Mount Olympus on a good day. And um, I came here in the year 2000 on sabbatical and uh, uh, had been commissioned by Evelyn Kenny to write a double concerto because I think she had an anniversary coming up with her pianist, Philip Smith, and she wanted to celebrate that by um, having a concerto for the two of them. And so that's what I came here to do. And in the end, I, I was here for six months and um, it's probably too late for the university to take legal action against me. I didn't write much of the piece while I was here. I actually spent a lot of, a lot of the time sort of looking at Mount Olympus and, you know, uh, just, just bathing in the kind of amazing sun and food and climate and vibe that's here. I did map out the, the sort of skeleton of the work, and then I went back to uh, New Zealand winter and wrote the piece. Wow. Yeah. I'll go to Greece for the first time ever in August. Great. What are you, what are you doing here? Theodore Milkov is a quite a famous marimbist, and he's running a summer camp, and it is in the Delphi uh, mountain mm. area. Wow. So, yeah, looking forward. Can't wait. I've been yeah, trying to just scope out the, the train route and the whole itinerary plan. And it's just, yeah, it just looks amazing. Yeah, it is. it's an amazing country. We've just been traveling around Europe for five months. I just did a massive um, two-month drive around Europe. And 
even though I'm biased, of course, because you know I'm Greek by background, um, it is a really special place here culturally, and I have a lot of great music friends here now that I've built up over a lot of time. And there's just you know, something really special about the culture. You know, it's a beautiful place. And if you're coming here, and did you say August? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be really hot. So be ready for super hot weather. But it's just uh, you know it's kind of unique. It's a unique place to be. What uh, you know, while we're on this, and this is probably just a, a, a ignorant question on my part, and this is probably well known, but uh, what made you settle in New Zealand, or what brought you to New Zealand? I, I was I was born there. My my parents they came to New Zealand as immigrants in 1960, and they turned up with you know nothing, empty suitcases, and and they they built a life there as immigrants, and. Um, uh, a lot of Greeks that came to New Zealand, they had a dream that they would go there, earn, earn a lot of money in a short space of time, and then go back to Greece. So it was really a temporary thing. But it was so lucrative there if you were a hard worker that a lot of the immigrants did very well. And so they actually they kept putting off going back to Greece. And my parents, after about 30 years, they came back. And they came back in the late 80s. Uh, and by that time, uh, my career it just kind of took off very quickly. You know, when I was a student, uh, even uh, one of the pieces I wrote as a student was premiered at um, at the Lincoln Center by Double Edge, who were two of the pianists in Steve Reich's group at the time. And so things really started to take off for me, and I ended up staying in New Zealand rather than following my family back to Greece. And that's kind of how it how it worked. And then things just really took off, you know, in lots of ways. And you mentioned the Athens Olympics, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you realize that after a while that the place that you're in, like the place that I'm in in New Zealand, it really facilitates, bizarrely, um, a, an international career. You know, even though I'm as far away from the rest of the world as you can be, mm-hmm. you know, the only further step is Antarctica, you know. And so it, it's been quite an incredible um sequence you know of, of unfoldings but um, yeah so i'm in new zealand and i love being there and it hasn't limited me in any way that i can see and even though it, the splitting the family up it was very hard it was very hard for me to stay there and for the rest of my family to be here it was hard for all of us um we were all in agreement that the best place for me to have stayed was new zealand rather than come to greece and that's sort of borne out much more now because greece is going through this massive terrible crisis and even though it's sort of dropped out of the news um, it's still really hard here. It hasn't changed for the better. And so, you know, I certainly wouldn't have I've gotten any of the stuff to happen that I've, I've got happening now if I was here. Right. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting hearing you talk about New Zealand because probably about five years ago at this point, I was playing with Miami Symphony and we had a guest conductor and I wish I could remember her name, but she was from New Zealand. And I don't know why I just, in passing, I just asked, oh, do you know John Sothis? And she like lit up and she was like, oh, he was my college music theory professor. And, and just it's like John is yeah. like a, a national hero of the classical music scene in New Zealand, it seems. Um, but, John, something you said when you were talking about working with different uh, artists, um, we had a Facebook question from Noah Petty that seemed relevant to ask there. Noah yeah. asks, when unfamiliar with an instrument, what does your collaborative process look like with the artists? I guess, well, I, especially considering the you know probably geographical spread. Yeah, yeah. So, that, so there, there are different parts to answering that. Well, one of the, one of the big ones is that um, I don't really collaborate with artists when I'm writing music because 
I have a, 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 a strong need to be as free as possible when writing. And so I take what is not a very practical approach, which is the approach of I know I'm going to get things wrong, but I'm going to write what I want to hear. And so I start, I start there. And I start writing music like, uh, say, a good example, because you'll probably know it, is one study, one summary. You know, I'll write a piece like that with the marimba doing what it does, with the backing doing what it does. And I'll have my fingers crossed through the whole process that it's actually playable. You know, because I don't, I don't know because I don't play. And someone taught me once, I can show you on Skype. They said, I'll go to a piano and have your fingers like this. Right. And that's, that's roughly the four mallet thing. And I'll do that. And I'll think, well, this, I don't know if this is right. But, you know, I'll be figuring it out in that way. Um, but in general, I assume that I'm going to get things wrong and I'm going to have to fix them. But I'd, I'd rather that because I tend to have worked with very generous performers who will go through that process afterwards and say, hey, man, look, I'm trying really hard, but this is just such an awkward corner. Is there any chance we can look at it and maybe adjust it in some way? So I'm really happy to do that because then when I'm writing, because the writing process for me is incredibly intense and really exciting. Like it's my really favorite place, you know, and I work, this is the other half of the answer. I work with technology. So I use logic. I have a ton of sample libraries and I've, I spend a lot of time creating MIDI versions because I make them as realistic as I know how to make them because I need to feel the music growing as I write. You know, I need to be physically and emotionally responding to what I'm hearing as I write it so that it leads me to what's next. It's like improvisation. It, you know, you, this has been said a lot of times about composing. It can be like a very slow improvisation. But for me, it's literally that because I need to make a noise, hear it, and be inspired by that to make the next noise. You know, and it goes onwards like that. And so um, to add to that, I only ever start pieces at the beginning. I, I, I can't, ever, I've never managed to imagine what the end of a piece is like without knowing what the beginning is like, because the end is a consequence of the beginning. And so I have that sort of feedback necessity when composing to start at, be, at measure one uh, and then respond to that in a very excited kind of musical way and create measure two and then go right through to the end of the piece and completely lose myself in the process. And then I interact with the performer and I, I send them a score and the MIDI backing and slowed down versions and all of these things that they might ask for and see what they say. And that's a very sort of um, terrifying part of the process because my fear is always that they're, they're going to write back and just say, look, you know, this, it's just simply not possible to play this or it's completely unidiomatic for the instrument or whatever. But that, that's definitely how I prefer to work in notated music. I'm talking specifically about that because I've worked a lot with improvisers and, and people who are sort of on the spectrum between improvising and reading. You know, there's lots of different traditions and, and um, performance practices that I've engaged with, but I'm answering your question specifically to do with notated read music, you know, those sorts of pieces. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned really being in it and getting really involved when you're composing. Yeah. In one of your interviews, you talk about good music versus great music and yeah. being in what you call the zone of discovery or what other people call flow. Can you talk yeah. a little about what you mean there? Sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit later, I'll tell you I've discovered the formula for great music, by the way. And I, um, I, <laughs> I teach it to my students and they just laugh at me. But I do, I do think it's, it's kind of, I, I've discovered something quite important. 
that probably everybody else knows. Uh, but anyway, um, to just answer your question about being in the in the sort of moment uh, or in the flow, because yeah, flow is the right word for it, of course, is that I've spent a lot of time creating a space in which I can work, you know, in a, in a really good way. And that space, um, it has different dimensions to it. Like it's, it's great seeing your son. You know, I've got two kids. One is 22 and the other's 18. And so I've been through that whole kind of journey. And I asked you about about the sleeping because we had one great sleeper and we had one that didn't sleep through the night until she was seven. Wow. So for seven years, we had no sleep. And that's that's quite a chronic, um, you know, journey. Now, now we can't get her out of bed. <laughs> the but um, the thing is that... Um, that creative space, it has, you know, I feel like I've had to work at getting all of the dimensions right so that within family, being husband, father, son, brother, all of those things, those relationships have to be really healthy because I, I'm a type of person, I guess, where if they're not the really core relationships in my life, um, I just can't write music. I can't do it. I'll sit down to write and I just cannot do it. And so it actually forces me to be a decent human being, you know, to to not be, um, as far as I can, I don't know what the others would say that know me, but this is how I, how I see it, you know. Um, and um, so that's one really important part of the space. The other space is the interrupted slash uninterrupted space. And when you have really young kids, like I committed to not telling my kids that they couldn't interrupt me. I committed to saying my door is always open. You know, you can always come in and they would always come in, you know, and, but I, I definitely think that's very important to be that kind of parent. Um, but as they've grown, I've been able to morph that workspace into, into a place where people don't knock on the door. And I had a very interesting experience recently, which is leading to some kind of major changes um, where a very generous person let me use their house, which was by the sea. It's a really incredible place. That piano circus piece, I wrote quite a lot of it there. And I had two weeks at one point where I was offline and I was just sleeping, working, sleeping, working, every now and then I'd eat. And my, I just let my body clock go completely free in terms of cycle. And so I would sleep for two hours, work for four, sleep for 30 minutes, work for five hours, just whatever felt like I needed to do. And I discovered, this was only last year, so it's quite late in life, but I discovered that my the quality of my work just went way higher, in my own opinion. And I was way more productive in a shorter space of time. I mean, all of this seems obvious when you say it, but if you've got any kind of normal 21st century life, you appreciate straight away just how hard it is to get that pocket of time, you know, where you can do your thing uninterrupted as if you're the only person in the universe for that period of time. And so that's made me realize that if I can uh, open up more of that particular kind of time, I think that the quality of my work and my feeling about it will also, you know, climb, it will go higher. So that's the, the other part of the space. And the final part of the space is um, to do with basically the technological environment that you work in, like what is the gear, like how do you make how do you make your music physically, how do you create it? And as I said, I really need feedback, uh, like audio feedback, I need to hear what I'm writing. But I also have a piano, and I'm, I, I'm not being humble, I'm a very average piano player, but what I do get out of playing at the piano is I sort of really emote at the piano. 
you know, I sort of, I, I bash the music and I feel it and I have a physical reaction to the music. And then I'll go to the computer and I'll start sequencing and logic and refining all of that stuff and making it sound, you know, like actual music that's in time and so on. Uh, and then once I've done all of that, that's when I start writing it out because I have no idea what the score looks like until I've heard what I want to hear. Then I go and try and figure out the score. And often, I mean, this is the interesting thing, I think, is to do with um, meter, you know, time signatures and things like that, which is I often write in, a, in just a total flow, not knowing where the downbeats are. And then it's afterwards, really mostly um, based on the melodic phrasing of what's driving the narrative. That's where I'll start shaping the meter and the time signatures. And often am really surprised like I'll be really surprised to go, wow! In the middle of all of those four fours, there's a three sixteen. Right. <laughs> I just felt I just felt it as a kind of cool corner in the rhythm when I was thinking when it was being born that moment, and I quite I quite like that freedom. So it's it's that thing about freeing oneself up, because I mean I'm sure you've all had the experience. You know, you you work with like a, a young musician and they're working on Sibelius software, and their music is so often in four four and they've never really thought about it because of these defaults that technology gives you all the time and tempi and all sorts of things. Yeah. Even just picking the default piano sound and logic, it will guide you in such a strong way and how you will write for the piano if that's the sound that you're using. Yeah, sorry, I told you long answers. That's great. <laughs> that's great. I'm, I'm just, I'm over here dying because I was one of the people at University of Miami that we recorded John's piece Kyoto and he's talking about how exciting it is and invigorating it is for him to be able to throw in these little like three eight bars. But yeah. I was the one that had to memorize that. And the first page <laughs> of my part for Kyoto, it was all on, I think it's a middle C, the entire thing, just like very similar 16th note rhythms with little like three eight bars thrown in. And I thought I was going to die memorize that. Ben, I watched that this morning. I was very impressed. It, it occurred to me right away, like, wow, this is a good recording. And oh, dang, Ben's memorized this. <laughs> we, I mean, we all have Ben has all memorized it. But yeah, that was, it was rough. Then it wasn't until the very, like the end of the semester that Tyson, the other marimba player, and I, we figured out that at the end of the piece, he had the exact same thing as I did, but it was just on C sharp. And it's like, well, we could have been like practicing this together, like figuring this out together the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I do, I do experience a little bit of tension about about that. You know, more and more, I guess now, about what, what am I putting people through, you know, with this. But the the thing is, what overrides it for me always is is this: what do I want to hear? You know, it's like, what do I want? What do I really want to hear? And then I, I try and make it as user friendly as possible. And often it's not. I, I really understand that. But you know, like you play the beginning of Kyoto. I think there's a there's a really good example in that of I don't know if it's an eleven sixteen bar or there's there's an idea that pops up very close to the beginning that I abandoned after the first time it happens. You know, it was something I was thinking, oh, I could do this, and then I just let it go. And at the beginnings of my pieces, if anybody ever does some kind of an analysis on it, then they come here, they'll see, oh, there was this little idea of a strange triplet thing, and that was abandoned. And then other things came to the fore, you know. And I apologize. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Like, I know a lot of composers talk about how user-friendly they can make their music. And I remember there's yeah. one part in Kyoto that it's like there's, like, an abrupt sort of break, and there's a little silence and then it goes on to the next section yes and it's in like multimeter and then it, one day we finally we realized it was just you could just count a three four bar or something like that i can't remember if that was exactly but that's what we did 
And it's like, you know, like, I don't think the composer is responsible for figuring out how the performer should, you know, perceive their music necessarily. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's a very good point because I'm very aware of that. And I, I often sit there thinking I could streamline the way meter is working in this. And then I'll, I'll, I'll have a think about what is the more overriding um, priority? Is it to show in the, in the barring the melodic phrasing, you know, the way that melody, different melodic cells are. Because I I've never done the thing that Bartok does where you will have um, with uh, three, four, eight phrases, you know, and they're crossing the bar line and then eventually it sort of lines up somewhere else. Um, you know, at that point I would change to five, eight. So it's just a different, I guess it's a different way of thinking about it. It's definitely not a performance way of thinking about it. Can you repeat that last part, John? Sorry, I think uh, I broke up just a yeah, little bit. Sure, sure. I, I said I, I, my way of thinking about it is definitely not a performer way of thinking about it. Right. You know, I'm really aware of that. It, um, it, it reminds me of what you said. Sometimes there might be an easier way to write something, but there's a, a bigger, broader, overarching idea that needs to be shown. And that reminds me so much of something I think I've told. It's a little story I think I've told in the podcast before, but... I was at a timpani clinic, and someone was playing Rite of Spring. The, the, the clinician was playing Rite of Spring. And, you know, there's all this mixed meter over the bar line, lots of polymeter at the end, and it's, it's that famous ending of Rite of Spring. And one of, the, uh, one of the other clinicians actually said, have you ever just thought of rebeaming all this in 4-4? And... The clinician said, oh, yeah, maybe, blah, 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 I don't know. But I kind of objected. I said, no, there's so much more going on. Like, there's so much metaphor and symbolism to, like, what's going on? You know, it, it makes so much sense to write it this way with this this person, you know, dancing themselves to death and their rhythm leaving this. You know, it's like it it's so beautiful only if it's written that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I also think that there is a whole... Um, uh, there's a whole narrative of downbeat through a work. You know, it's the downbeat structure, which is its own thing. It's its own kind of persona within a work. And I think it's a very powerful thing. And it's often it's it's often not, not thought about. It's just expressed instinctively by performers, by players. But from the composing point of view, composing down, downbeats means something different from playing downbeats. And so for me, it's, it's quite a major part of the process. It's, it is mostly intuitive, and I can't say much more about it than that. But, um, yeah, when I go through, maybe it's the way that I work, you know, when I go through and work out the meter later, that the way the, the meter is, is shaped becomes its own sub-composition within the work. Cool. Caleb, you got a Facebook question there. Do you have a Facebook question here? Uh, oh, our bud, Bill Shaw. Uh, he asks, you've imagined, sorry, you've embraced the potential of solo timpani with Planet Damnation and Bouillon. Uh, one is, when will your new work that you wrote for Diana, uh, Bouillon, be available? And have you ever considered writing works for timpani without the backing tracks? Mm. He's got a timpani so, agenda, that Bill. <laughs>
So the first um, answer, the first part of that uh, about when it's available, I think the materials will be available very soon from Promethean. But uh, and I, I've spoken to Diana about uh, I've asked her about possible performances because I've already been approached by people, and I think as long as there are no performances in North America before. March next year, which is when her exclusivity runs out. Um, Diana's quite happy for it to be played in anywhere else in the world before then. Um, and then in terms of writing for Solo Timpani, I saw that question on Facebook and it was great to think about it. And what it made me realize was that the reason that I've gotten into the uh, solo percussion plus audio backing is it's an extension of my general kind of feeling about composing and what excites me is it's about the relationship between performers. You know, that's why I've written quite a few concerti. I love writing concerti because the relationship between the soloist or soloists and the orchestra is so, it has so many possibilities. You know, it can be so many different kinds of relationships. And I think that I probably won't ever write something for solo timpani or solo snare or solo anything maybe apart from piano. I struggle very much with solo, real solo works. Because for me, the the energy or, or the power of the narrative of the work comes from uh, interaction and dialogue. That's what really inspires me when writing, is that how are these players, people, or the computer and the person, how are they engaging with each other? And that's where the energy for me comes from. You know? And then that's why I think chamber music is kind of my my thing. You know, it's small groups or um, duos or you know solos with audio. And timpani, I've got to say, hardest instrument to write for in the percussion, definitely the hardest. And when I wrote the uh, the timpani concerto, Planet Damnation, you know, that was originally, for, it's originally for timpani and orchestra. Um, it was extremely hard keeping the timpani as the focus of the, because I think in terms of storytelling in music, you know, and I think, well, even if it's not explicit narrative, which almost never is with me, but there is some kind of narrative unfolding musically, right? And well, how do I keep the, this person as the foreground narrative storyteller if it's a concerto? Mm -hmm. And of course they can stop and other people can take over. Of course that has to happen, you know, within works. But um, with the timpani, the hard thing was to do with the timbre of the instrument, you know, the actual the tone of the, the drums, uh, because the, the timpanist who commissioned the work, uh, Larry Reese, uh, he, he, you know, his focus, and Diana's was even more so, was the idea of the timpani as a melodic instrument. And I've always thought the timpani's got fantastic potential as a melodic instrument. But when you throw it in front of an orchestra and the whole orchestra's playing and you want to exploit the bigness of it as well, as well as the quietness of the instrument, and you've generally got what I feel are softish mallets. You know, they, they never really feel quite as hard as what you'd get on a marimba. There's some kind of softness to it. Um, the tricky thing is keeping the, the timbre of the timpani as it plays melody projecting in front of all the other colors that are coming out of the orchestra. And so what I ended up doing with that concerto, my, my solution to that for that one piece was to have a whole lot of instruments doubling the timpani for very brief periods of time. So you would have the oboe play a few notes in unison with the timpani. You would have the flute take that over, then maybe the trumpet, maybe, you know, it would just move around a lot within the orchestra. But the timpani was consistently playing the line. And so if you wanted to follow the line, your ear had to follow what the timpani was doing. But to get the line to project beyond the orchestra and not get lost in the orchestra, it had all of the support from these instruments that were playing very sporadically. And that was a solution that seemed to work. 
for that. Yeah, and, and I learned during that whole process just how tough an instrument the timpani is to write for, for me. Sure. You know? But I love it, and it was great writing for Diana, the, the second piece, because I wrote, you know, I wrote something, I thought, oh, she really wants something that's going to challenge her. She's asked for something, you know, really melodic, and, and so I wrote a piece and I sent it to her. It's the only time I ever got an email back saying, oh, I think you could push this more. You should think about doing this. You should add two timpani at the same time doing Lysander. Yeah. You know, I, all these suggestions came back, and I thought, wow, there's a ceiling beyond the ceiling that I didn't know about. Right. Yeah, and um, it was really great writing uh, specifically for Diana because her her video of the karaoke planet damnation for me is like it's just so amazing. I love that so much, and I have these kind of definitive videos, you know, that I go to all the time, and that's one of them for that piece. The other one is the Frost um, Kyoto. You know, I just love that so much, and I'm just waiting. I know Svet's done another video and I had a sneak preview of it and I love I really can't wait for that to appear in the world you know it's not out yet but um, yeah I, I saw just a tiny little bit of Svet's version and it's it's very different from the, yeah, the yeah. Frost yeah, one yeah. yeah 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 so um yeah that was a long answer again but yeah the timpani I, I love the instrument I think what I'd really love to do with timpani is kind of use it in a in a chamber setting which I've never I've never done that I think it would be really interesting for instance to write for timpani and piano that for me would be a really interesting kind, of, or just timpani other percussion. I think in a piece, a piece I did recently called Cloud Folk, um, I, which Michael Burrett commissioned for the Eastman Percussion Group, I pushed the timpani quite a bit in that. You know, it's a really tough part. And part of it has been that I met Larry in the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. And I'm assuming you guys are going to edit all of this because I'm going on forever, but I met Larry in the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra um, years and years ago, and we became good friends. And how these things work. I felt confident around him. I trusted him, and he loves. The, I mean, he's mad about timpani, and he was always telling me stuff about timpani. So whenever I quite a lot, because I knew he wouldn't complain. I knew he'd really love it. And so, for instance, in View from Olympus and that concerto, there's a massive timpani part. In my piano concerto, three psalms. There's like it's almost soloistic timpani writing, but it's within the orchestra. And it's because that person that I just happened to get to know gave me all of this confidence around the instrument. Yeah. Well, you said timpani and piano you would like to write for. And yeah. speaking of Bill Schultes, he had, he had me write a piece for timpani and piano, but Laurel mm. plays a piece called Nightmares for timpani and piano, which I know we've mentioned on the show before. But uh, is that David Pagel, Laurel? Yeah, David wrote that. He actually wrote that while we were in underground. Cool so. piece. Yeah, really really works. And, and I'd just like to add, you know, speaking of timpani and chamber music, if you guys have ever heard Schnitka's hymn number one, it's timpani, harp, and cello, and it really works. And it's not mm -hmm. it's not slam-banging timpani either. It's very it's sparse, lots of pedaling, and the harp is mm -hmm. pedals a lot, and it's just it's really, really um, just eerie and, and beautiful. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, so one to check out. Laurel, I was going to uh, move to you next since it looks like Robin's asleep and you uh, you have your hands free. He is. <laughs> Before I uh... prioritize, when Laurel's free, we have to let her do her thing. Yeah. yeah. I did want to ask John a question really quickly. You told us last week, I guess, that you were writing a new piece for Mike Burrett. I think a yeah. Marimba piece. Is it going to have tape with it also? Yeah, we talked about that, and he was very keen on that. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, and um, 
yeah, Mike and I have developed a really nice relationship over time. You know, he's been really forthcoming, very generous, and um, supportive of of me and new works and so on. Uh, the, the project with Mike is we've pretty much pretty much decided what it's going to be, like how long, what the resources are, and so on. One of the things we're exploring at the moment is the possibility of more instruments, like not just the marimba, because Mike also has sort of a whole lot of hand drumming stuff going on, and he, I think he's a great drum player, which I didn't know about. You know, I'm only just finding out about that stuff. And the thing about having a backing track is that you can kind of evolve the universe you know, of the sound world that you're working in, so it's possible to have somebody make quite a major switch from marimba to something that's completely different, which would be harder to make work, I think, if there wasn't some kind of, uh, you know, sonic carpet that everything was was walking on. So it's opened up quite a few new possibilities for me with Mike. Yeah, and I really, I really love Mike. It's great when we talk. He's, I think, he, it feels like he drinks a lot of coffee. <laughs> so much energy. So I always feel so slow. Can, yeah, I think we can confirm that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can confidently say that's true. Yeah, he's so nice. Every, he has such a great yeah. energy about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's get okay. a break, Laurel. What do you What do you got? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you guys, I have this series on my blog called Marimba Body, which is totally feeds my interest in anatomy and my interest in being able to play until I'm like 95 as a way to prevent injury. And uh, so I was gifted a book last summer that's very much along those lines. It's called Anatomy of Drumming, and it's by John Lamb. In terms of what he says about his book, he says it's a way to use the knowledge of anatomy to play better, and that when drummers talk about technique, they're talking about the movements they make to play the drums. And I know that that sounds really obvious. Obviously, it's about movements we make to play the drums. But I think what is important and uh, he really focuses on throughout the book is to make sure that the movements you're using make sense with how your body is actually structured. And that's an idea that resonates with me to the very center of my being. I've looked through it a little bit and I've, I've only read about 30 pages, but in flipping through, he does talk about setting up a drum set in a way that makes sense to your body. He talks about molar. He talks about different uh, techniques of playing. So I think it's actually going to be a really great read. So I'm excited to uh, finish it. Early on, he mentions Phil Collins, whom I hope everybody knows. <laughs> he played for the Beatles, right? That's, that's <laughs> right, Phil Collins right and the Beatles. Do, yeah. do, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, Wipeout. They did Wipeout. <laughs> yeah. So he mentions Phil because uh, when Phil Collins was 58, he started to deal with some really serious neck problems and admitted in interviews that he couldn't hold the sticks properly without it being painful and that from time to time he would even tape his sticks to his hands to get through a show. And like, that's a pretty serious thing. And in 2011, he said to an interviewer, quote, I'm not worried about not being able to play the drums again. I'm more worried about being able to cut a loaf of bread safely or building things for my kids. My doctors tell me it's a work in progress, that it'll take about a year for me to recover. Right now, I'm just not strong enough to play the drums. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that again. Uh, and end quote from the interview. So as... 
Lamb works through the book and through some of his ideas, it became pretty clear to me that he has either really studied Alexander Technique or he's even certified in it just from the way he's talking through some of his ideas and some concepts that he either mentions directly or indirectly, such as primary control, body mapping, and end gaining. So primary control is this idea that if you can release uh, you know, your neck, that you can help relax the rest of the body simply because we often develop tension in our necks, A, because our heads are so heavy, they can weigh around 14 pounds, which is really quite heavy, um, but also because of how we use our eyes to look at objects and to pay attention to things, we'll often put the neck in really funny positions. Body mapping is this idea that you know actually how your body's structured versus how you think it's structured, and then end gaining is a concept that is about making sure that your attachment to whatever your goal is, let's say playing a particular rudiment at a particular speed, that with that goal, you don't lose connection to how you should move to get there, that you don't become blind to making sure that you're doing it in a healthy way. Lamb also mentions that his mom was a massage therapist. So I got to thinking, huh, maybe this idea of ease and <laughs> losing tension is something that he's just been around for a long time. Something that I liked in one of the last sections that I read is a reference to a study. So I don't know if it's because I'm in academia for my job or just because I'm a nerd or because I love anatomy and studies, as I so often report about here, but I'm always really happy to see when someone in our field really cites a study. And he does that when he talks about something called the scientific basis of body mapping, which is written by the chair of applied physiology at Georgia Tech, Richard Nichols. Nichols writes that if movement is based on an inaccurate knowledge or perception about the anatomy of the body, then pathologic changes can result. These practices can lead to alterations in cortical representation, which can then become reinforcing of the faulty motor practice. So to interpret that, it means if you think, for example, that your wrist, if your elbow stays still, that your wrist can make a perfect circle with your fingers, that you're eventually going to teach your wrist that it can do that, even though the design of the joint is elliptical due to all the tiny little bones in there and where there is space and where there is not, the wrist can actually just make an ellipse, a vertical ellipse, not a perfect circle. And if you try to make it make a perfect circle, you'll might hear some crackling, but you'll certainly feel like things are just kind of scratching over each other in a way that doesn't feel good. However, they know if you keep telling yourself that it can, you'll make it do that and you will of course develop some tendonitis and perhaps some nerve damage along the way. The section that I just completed is a chapter called Movement Matters and this is the last part of the book that I've read and I really loved a few things about it because they reminded me of some thoughts that I need to keep in mind as I'm getting back into practicing after having the baby and that's the idea that muscles don't push they pull. So for example, yeah, like that's such a simple statement, but it's so pertinent. 
like you reach for a crash cymbal from a drum set, your bicep doesn't push your arm out. Muscles don't do that. What happens is your tricep contracts and some of the muscles around your lats contract. And that's what allows your arm to stretch out and straighten at the elbow to hit the cymbal. He talks about giving 110% when it comes to body work doesn't make sense. You should aim for just enough rather than working more than you need to. I think that's a huge idea. It very much plays in, into a concept he mentions called tensegrity, which for the engineers out, out there is probably really familiar, but it wasn't for me. And tensegrity refers to a structure that's held together with solid parts and tensioned wires. So a really great example of this is a bicycle tire where you have the outer rim and then you have those tense wires that make sure it stays tight. Compact. The word is a combination of tension and integrity. Lamb says the body is a tensegrity structure. So our bones are kind of uh, like the rim of the bicycle tire, and our muscles and connective tissue are that's a really interesting idea. But perhaps one of my really favorite things was his reminder that there are two types of muscle fibers. And the first type is slow twitch fibers. So these are uh, fibers that have to do with stamina and endurance, like running a half marathon. And then there are type two fibers, which are fast. So that's like weight training and sprints. And when we're developing our technique, we need to develop a mix of those in order to be able to play healthily. And we're all born with kind of a default ratio of type one to type two. But as we teach our body what we want it to do, especially at younger ages, that ratio starts to change in order to suit the needs that we are imprinting on the body that we need. So if you, like Casey, for example, can play really fast and he can do it for short periods, but he can also do it for pretty long periods compared to most people. So he has really adapted his type one and type two fibers. Or he's just juicing. Yeah, and he's probably just juicing, yeah. That means steroids, anybody does it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think Caleb's juicing too. I'm always juicing. Sorry, yeah. Laura. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Um but it's it, that really rang true with me because I ran I guess it was like two autumns ago I ran a half marathon and I thought my legs are gonna be so strong and then I you know, went back to the gym and I was doing kind of the more uh, anaerobic exercises. And I was, I was like, huh, nope, can't do any more weight than I thought I could. And it's because those are two different types of muscle fibers. So in all that training, I was working on just one type and not the other. Two final ideas for you guys from what I've read so far. Weight travels through bone and muscle moves bone. So we don't hold up our bodies. Like when you're playing vibraphone and it feels like you have to kind of hold the upper half of your body up if you're leaning over funny, um, get rid of the idea that you have to hold it up. Our bones, our skeleton are actually stacked in such a way that they will support the weight and muscle just helps place the bones where we need them to be. And finally, as we are working and moving our body, it's important to think about the connective tissues. And when I say think about them, you can't 
really just focus on them, but just contemplate <laughs> how your body's moving maybe once or twice in every practice session. And I bet you'll notice some things. Connective tissues are those in the body that connect muscle to bone, like tendons or bone to bone, which are ligaments. So our fingers have lots of ligaments in them, um, but not necessarily, uh, well, tendons run up from muscles in the hand in the forearm, but ligaments in terms of uh, attaching the different sections of the fingers. And then finally, there's fascia, which is kind of a bungee cord like sheet that wraps around muscle and kind of protects the body from injury. So when you ask something to work, so for example, if you're doing a one handed roll on marimba, you have the signal from your brain, which goes to your muscle and the muscle force goes about 70% through the tendons and 30% through the fascia or the rest of the muscle fibers. Hmm. And that that's a ratio that surprised me, if I'm being honest, um, because the tendons are just connective and they're not nearly as flexible as muscle tissue. Like, you know, muscle tissue is made to contract and then to relax, but the tendon length doesn't change much when muscles do that. So I was really surprised to read that 70% of the power is going to go through the tendon and then only the remaining 30% gets to the muscle. So it really, um, it reminded me of something that I often say to our students, which is if you're dealing with pain at or in a joint, which is where tendons attach, uh, that's dangerous because it means you've got swelling of the tendon. You know, if you're dealing with pain like in your bicep, that's unfortunate, but it's not as alarming to me in terms of playing percussion as it would be, you know, pain at the bottom of your bicep on the inside of your elbow. That is more worrisome. So I, uh, that was maybe a little long winded, but this is kind of my thing. I, I'm really excited to go through this book and I think we're going to ask John if he wants to join us on an episode because <clears throat> I, yeah, I think it's just going to be really great. And I look forward to finishing it and maybe in two more segments, I'll get through the rest of the book. That's John Lamb is his name. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I was going to say, no, Laurel, John Sathis is here. John is here. <laughs> He's here now. You, 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 you don't have enough sleep. Robin's kept you awake yeah. too long. Yeah. So between, I, between. I just had a quick tidbit to add to this because I, I think that I was sort of uh, terrified at a young age of all this sort of stuff Laurel's talking about because I heard this story and I'm positive it's true. I don't know to exactly what extent, but um, if you look at old school like jazz players like in the 70s a lot of them would put their ride cymbal completely vertical on the right side of their drum set and play it kind of up in the air and it's a very hip looking thing and it has kind of a nice feel in the hand and ed sof who taught at unt at the time um when i was there uh ed sof uh used to do that from what i understand and he started having some like hand problems and so he went in to see a doctor and they you know looked at everything and they asked him you know how he's playing drums and they said okay well, what's happening is you're getting gangrene and the tendons in, in, in your wrist because you're not getting blood up to your hand. Jeez. So either we can amputate your hand or you can change the way that you play drums. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so he changed the way he played drums and now all of his students, very, very low ride symbol. And so for me, I mean, that was just a, a clear message from the get go. Like, yeah, if you're not playing in a healthy manner, it's, it's not sustainable. 
I never would have guessed that uh, that he he would have played. Like that. <laughs> never. No, I wouldn't have either. Yeah. I and Gangrene, that sounds like that. such an Gangrene sounds like an like an 18th century problem. Like, did you have scurvy too? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it just reminded me so much when you're talking about Phil Collins. Um, have y'all heard of Freddie Gruber? Yeah. Much a little bit. Yeah. Well, he. I mean, you know, he was playing with uh, Charlie Parker back in the day, some before he died of heroin. Or yeah, before he died of heroin. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. He says the same thing Laurel was talking about. Uh, I assume Gruber was all self-studied. One second, I gotta block the chat. Yeah, just ignore it. This is like three episodes in a row now. You've been derailed by the chat. <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like Fred Gruber is self-studied. But his students, you know, Vinny Calyuta, Nilper, Steve Smith, and I think most notably Dave Weckl, they all started doing this far more healthy approach to playing when they started studying with Gruber. Like I think Dave Weckl was on the edge of just really serious wrist pain until Freddie got a hold of him and said, you need to do this, this, and this, and then worked with him for a year. And then now his approach is kind of the standard we do. It's just really cool to see that in the medical community and as well, or sorry, I guess John's a little more research focused but that uh, versus what we do is kind of the same, same stuff going on. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Since the name Dave Weckl came up, actually, I asked John before we did the podcast about a few of his influences, and he said, well, there are many, and he cited a few, one of which was Dave Weckl. And if you've played John's piece, is it pronounced Matra's dance? Is that how you yep, say it? Good. Okay, good. good. I've been saying good. that forever, and I've heard so many variations on it. But if you look at John's piece, Matra's dance, there's some funky rhythms uh for example one rhythm i'd never encountered before was dotted 16th notes it's like uh i guess four over three 16th notes it's, it doesn't sound all that weird until you try and do it um and it felt very like dave weckl push and pull sort of rhythm so could you talk about how dave weckl has influenced your music well um even more than mattress dance is drum dances which is for drum kit and piano which was you know I, i'm of an age where i was kind of going through university when Chick Corea formed the electric band. And, you know, that was when that whole thing started. And that's when Dave Weckl appeared and John Petitucci and Eric Morant or Frank Gambale, you know, they all kind of got thrown into the, the limelight because of that particular band. Um, and I was totally hooked by that stuff. And in particular, uh, Dave Weckl's drumming. You know, I loved it so. I loved it so much, and I I really liked Chick Corea's composing at that time as well, and so I have absorbed tons of that. And there are in some of my pieces, you can just see the influence and the referencing of that kind of music and that kind of writing. I mean, the strange part to that, of course, is that I took what was primarily an improvised, a very high level improvised chamber music, and tried to create something that that felt like that, but was totally notated. You know, so it's a kind of a weird, a paradoxical kind of thing. But um, just on that, I met Dave Weckl last year for the first time. He's, he's a real hero of mine. And he came to New Zealand and I sat next to him for dinner. And um, I had, if you, you mentioned, Laurel, you mentioned the word nerd before. If you want to know what real nerd is, I'm sitting next to Dave Weckl and I pull out my phone and I go, hey, man, there's a piece of music you played on 30 years ago. And I've always wanted to know whether in this part of the song um, you actually drop a 16th because you come out with 
down with, you know, I'm rambling on. And he's looking, I can see, why did I sit next to this guy? You know, and I pull out my phone and I start playing this piece. It's called Here and There. And it's on his first album, Master Plan. And I play it to him and he's going, yeah, sure, sure. And then I was so gratified, so gratified that then he started to look confused and unsure of himself. Because I've spent like 30 years trying to come to a conclusion about this particular thing. <laughs> and uh, in the end, he's, he, he had to say, I'll leave it with me and I'll get back to you. you know? But I thought the, the idea of somebody sitting next to you at dinner and pulling out a device and playing you a piece of music and asking you for your, you know, uh, the, the, what's the word, the, um, the truth, you know, the gospel truth about what went on is a kind of extreme form of nerdism, you know, but it was just such a great opportunity uh, to meet him and hang out with him. Wow. Yeah. So he's been a really big influence. And I remember him talking about that story about Freddie Gruber, you know, in an interview talking about how he had got to that real limit of what he could do and he's starting to suffer and it's completely transformed his playing. Well, you mentioned drum dances and mantras dance. And I know I've told the story of Evelyn Glennie playing Mantra's Dance when I was coming. My parents took me to Salt Lake City. Evelyn Glennie was in town, and they just took me to go listen to her. And it was, she's been, yeah, just a huge inspiration to me. And, of course, John has collaborated with Evelyn Glennie many, many times. And Ben, I don't think we've ever given the the historical uh, bio Evelyn Glennie. So, so. There's a reason for that. I tried to put it off for as long as I could because I knew that was like such like an, an easy household name that I could go to. <laughs> but finally, <laughs> I just had to because we have John Sothis on. I wanted to talk about Evelyn Glennie. Um, and so, yeah, and I've got a little personal experience I'll share later. But uh, sort of the, the quick background on Evelyn Glennie and some Evelyn Glennie facts. She was born July 19th, 1965 in Aberdeenshire, Scotland. And uh, on her website, she claims, and this is a quotation from her website, she is the first person in history to successfully create a full-time career as a solo percussionist. And she does make that claim, and I think I, that's a, pretty much a fact. I can't think of anyone else that I could uh, prop up with not having any sort of university teaching career or symphony orchestra sort of career that exclusively tours the world as a full-time solo percussionist. Um, her father was a musician, and she was influenced by the strong musical traditions of Northeast Scotland growing up. She began playing harmonica, clarinet, and piano as a child, and she saw her school orchestra perform at the age of 12. And from what I understand, it was just sort of a, you know, hey, join the band next year sort of thing. And she said as soon as she saw them, she knew she wanted to play percussion. She started losing her hearing at the age of two and by the age of 12 she was profoundly deaf so she often plays barefoot in order to uh, better feel vibrations through her feet on the floor she has a ted talk where she sort of does an excellent uh summary of her uh thoughts on the topic and she says that she feels often her uh coverage of her deafness in the media is misrepresented and she says that her ted talk i think clears some of that up she studied at the Royal Academy of Music in London with James Blades, which we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. And I love there's a quote from James Blades, and he says, in 1982, she became my student, or I hers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she gives over 100 concerts a year. She also plays bagpipes, and I think this is super cool. She has her own registered tartan known as the Rhythms of Evelyn Glennie, which that's like that sort of uh, checkered pattern you see on kilts and the like. 
Her collaborators have included Bjork, Bela Fleck, Bobby McFerrin, and Fred Frith, to name a few. Philip Smith has been a longtime duo partner, as John mentioned earlier. She has served as an advocate for music education. She co-founded a uh, consortium called Music in Education Consortium with Sir James Galway, Julian Lloyd Webber, and Michael Kamen. She was the subject of a 2004 documentary called Touch the Sound. She was featured in the 2012 Summer Olympics opening ceremony. She's commissioned, I called it countless works, that's over 200 works from the likes of, it's like a who's who's list of composers, Giannis Zanakis, Michael Doherty, Anders Koppel, Chen Yi, John Carigliano, Eric Wason, Kevin Putz, Christopher Rouse, and of course, our very own John Sathis. Uh, she's performed well over 100 concerti. I stopped counting because it was just so many listed on the <laughs> website. She's recorded around three dozen albums. Her first album was a recording of the Bartok Sonata, and that won a Grammy. It's pretty rare, I think, for a performer to win a Grammy for their first album. She has a collection of over 2,000 percussion instruments. Her honors, which exceed 90 different awards, include the aforementioned Grammy Award, Scott of the Year. Uh, in 2008, she was inducted into the PAS Hall of Fame, the Polar Music Prize. She has 15 honorary doctorates, and she is a Dame Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, which is the female equivalent of knighthood. And she was also inducted into the Order of Companions of Honor. And along with all of this in her spare time recently, she has taken to designing jewelry inspired mm -hmm. by her sort of percussion. And then uh, my favorite, I'm going to close on this one. In 2001, she appeared on Sesame Street playing with Oscar the Grouch's Grouch Couture Trash Band alongside uh, Linda, who is the deaf cast member of um, Sesame Street. And then my personal experience when I was like, 14 or 15 years old. I was just, I was so young I couldn't even drive. My teacher had to take me. I got to play for Evelyn Glennie in a master class. Um, and like I don't I don't know how I lucked into that. I remember I played a rhythm song with a friend of mine. Um, but in addition to all these honors, she remains like the most humble, sweet person I think I've ever met. And if you watch the Sesame Street segment, I mean it's not an act. She's genuinely just a very kind, nice person, which I think is often difficult to find in uh, a musician of her caliber. So John, I know she's commissioned uh, at least a couple of pieces for you and she's recorded Matra's Dance and uh, there's a nice quote from John. He said, and now that Evelyn Glennie has performed my pieces, uh, you know, they've seen a lot more of the world than even I have. Um, so John, could you talk about your experiences working with Evelyn Glennie? Yeah, sure. So I was very lucky to, um, have that relationship begin as Evelyn was launching into the world. And, and I think it was 1992, I had written a piece for uh, piano percussion matrix dance and Evelyn was, was really starting to get her career going internationally. And she came to New Zealand and when she came to New Zealand, she performed in the arts festival there and they, the arts festival in New Zealand, because we're so far away, when we have artists come over, the festivals, chamber music societies, the orchestras, etc. they try and get visiting artists to perform works by local composers because it helps us get our music out. Um, and so the festival gave Evelyn a bunch of pieces uh, that had percussion and she chose major arts, you know, to get in Zealand concert. And I had just seen a very short segment of her on the news um, leading up to that and I had no real contact with her. Um, and I turned up to the concert and was electrified. It was the most incredible thing. That was my first contact with her, was to be in the audience 
uh, when she performed Matrix Dance in front of my home people, you know, like people in my hometown. So, and that was really incredible. And Philip Smith was playing with her then. Um, and I, I was quite young then, and I went to see her afterwards. And, you know, being young and brash, I just said, well, you know, how about I write something for you? Because this piece was written for somebody else. And Evelyn was just like, totally, let's do that. And so then I, I wrote drum dances for her. Um, and the thing is that in the meantime, as I was writing that piece, Evelyn went on to play Matrix Dance like everywhere. And at that time, uh, that was back in the time of fax machines, I remember writing to her office and saying, um, is there any chance you could send me a list of the performances? Because it's really good for me to keep track you know, of where that piece is being played. It's really helpful. And I was at the university and the fax arrived you know, with the names. And eventually we were all gathered around the fax machine as this endless fax just came out with performance after performance. It was handwritten as well. You know, she'd written it all down by hand. And it was like, it was over a hundred performances, you know, of this piece. And there were places like Kalamazoo. I had no idea where that was. You know, there was, uh, there was Windsor Castle was on there. Timbuktu was on there. You know, these really exotic kind of places, but in all of the, the traditional kind of concert um, locations. So that was, that was a really big thing. And you know, I, I can say, you know, it's not giving anything away that um, my relationship with Evelyn has certainly been um, uh, up and down. It's been, been very tumultuous because it's been a very long-term relationship. Yeah. So a lot has happened in that time. But it's really important, and I say it every time, is that Evelyn really launched me. Out of all of the people that helped me get somewhere in the world and start a career, Evelyn did that. And I think she did it for quite a lot of composers. And a part of it is that when she plays a piece... She really sells it. You know, it's just such an amazing delivery of a work. Um, and so audiences in general, it's amazing. I want to hear that again. Or I like that composer. You know, it's, it's a great way of being presented. And then the other thing is she just plays so much. And so if your piece is in her repertoire, then like it happened with Matrix Dance, it just goes everywhere. And so I think that Matrix Dance became a kind of part of the repertoire. You know, it became the core, part of their core percussion repertoire. Um, and really because of Evelyn and drum dances to a lesser extent because she didn't play it as much. Um, and then I, I did write a third piece for her called Happy Tachyons. And that's when I did write an impossible piece. And it's a piece that is for marimba vibes, one player and piano. And I kind of assumed that you could play marimba and vibes in unison really fast at the same time. And I, I, I didn't really understand how that worked. So that, that was a piece that didn't have quite the same success. And then I wrote um, the concerto View from Olympus for her and for Philip. And um, we had a, we haven't had much contact in the last while, uh, I would say for maybe the last 10 years or so, because my own journey has just expanded and broadened so much. And I engage with so many different kinds of performance now. Um, but the, I can never I can never not say just what a kind of fundamental um, component or, or aspect to my my journey Evelyn was and I'll always always over for that yeah I can't say enough wonderful things about Evelyn Glennie you said making mantras dance a part of the core repertoire I mean she's done that with many pieces I mean think of how many pieces are part of the core repertoire you know, probably rhythm song Ben you know, yeah. I mean, she's got that CD rhythm song and Rosaro Concerto, Mexican dances. Like, there's just so many pieces that, I mean, of course, there's no way to prove this, but I mean, um, yeah, she's just, yeah, Evelyn Glennie's just wonderful. 
Can I throw in one more thing there? Yeah, please. Which is, I had a really great uh, conversation with Evelyn in about 2001, uh, when we were in Austria. We were, we were at the um, Kleinspuren Festival, and Evelyn was there playing a quadruple percussion concerto of mine with three Austrian percussionists. And um, we just ended up having this really interesting conversation about the difference between concertos and chamber music, as Evelyn Glennie, you know, like what she does and how she does what she does. And what Evelyn talked about was a kind of growing frustration with the um, the way orchestras work, you know, the economic model of orchestras, the limits rehearsal time, obviously we all know that, right, and everything has to happen really fast. And just this sort of, because she did so many concerti and she was, she was premiering a lot of them, that um, there was often this case of just just making sure that it was good enough to get to the finish line because there was no more rehearsal time with the orchestra. It's that thing of, you know, what, what is it? It's uh, like damage control, you know, or, or avoiding the train wreck or, you know, all those sorts of things where you can you can get through the work and do it pretty well. And comparing that to chamber music where you can rehearse for as much as you want often and just keep working and refining and going deeper and deeper into the music. And I, I found that a really interesting idea because I hadn't really come across it before, just that from the whole journey from composing to the audience um, receiving the work with concertos, that they can, uh, that there can be, I guess, what do you call a minimum good that happens? Yeah. You know, whereas in, in chamber music, you can kind of go for a maximum good. Right. And it's simply, I think simply because of economics, it's not to do with the, the wish of the performers. It's nothing to do with that at all. Yeah. What do you got there, Caleb? Yeah, uh, myself and buddy of mine, Matt Campbell, were kind of curious um, if you just talk a little bit about your recent work with Piano Circus. Oh, yeah, sure. There's another question on Facebook, which I'll just connect this to, which is about how do I go about choosing, you know, who I collaborate with and what, what things I take on. Um, so the answer to that part is that I need to be excited about who it is that I'm working with. It's a really big part of it. And even though the work is, is if I'm lucky, going to be played by other people as well, the actual inspiration while writing the work is thinking about the people it's being written for. So, for instance, when I write for Mike Burrett, I'm thinking about Michael. I'm thinking about his energy and all that stuff. And uh, Piano Circus got in touch with me because one of the pianists in their group, it's six pianos, right? And uh, one of them got in touch with me, Dawn Hardwick, because she was playing View from Olympus with Evelyn Glennie. And so she had some questions for me about View from Olympus piano part. And we started talking. She told me about the group. And immediately for me, I think six pianos, that's incredible. And I completely ignored the voice in my head that goes, that's so impractical. <laughs> I just completely ignore that voice. And I just get so excited about the possibility of six pianos. And because I'm really into this um, using pre-record and audio, the idea of having that and six pianos was a, a kind of whole universe of possibility opening up for me. I just got so excited so fast. And then I met them. 
I went over to London for various things and I went out drinking with them. And there is an aspect to what I do, which is I really like going out drinking with people and having a good time and, and you know, just getting to know people and having those big conversations around the table and, you know, letting it all go and, and sharing philosophies and so on. Um, and they are great for that. All of them. Piano Circus are a great group to hang out with. And let alone that they're amazing players and, and have really great philosophy about music. Um, just so fantastic to have the big talks with. So I went to London and, and met them and we really hit it off and we agreed that we've got to make something happen and we figured out how to how to uh, resource it. And I went back to New Zealand and while I was writing, it was really one of the most exciting journeys I've been on in a while. A big piece, 40 minutes you know, a really big piece for six pianos and massive pre-record soundscape that goes with it. Uh, and we just had a week in Aldborough in the U UK. We had a residency there where we were able to work on the, the piece and the audio and the monitoring because it's quite a complicated audio setup. And we're now looking at how we're going to launch that piece into the world. So, yeah, very, very exciting collaboration. You do such a good job keeping up with your YouTube channel. You're very active on Facebook. And a mm -hmm. lot of composers, they seem to, I, of course, a lot do, but I feel like a lot don't do any of that. And one of the videos I saw of yours, we talked about just, I think it was actually just on Caleb's episode a few episodes ago, but on social media, people tend to only post their successes and triumphs, and you don't get a realistic picture of all the work that actually goes into it and some of the trials and tribulations that we suffer through. And you have this great video called Good for Nothing Recording Session about <laughs> this this pretty intense mishap that happened where you were doing a major recording session with the orchestra and something like there was a measure off in all the parts and there was yeah, a yeah, problem yeah. that had to be fixed. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And things like... Just, just the press of a computer button and your horn parts can transpose up twice. <laughs> no, and, and the thing about recording an orchestra for a soundtrack, every second costs you a lot of money, you know, and the, the stress of that was, um, yeah, a real learning, you know, it was a, it was a big thing to go through that. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's important to share all that stuff. On that, if I can just say, and I'm sure I've spoken too much, but I did a big project a few years ago called No Man's Land, in which I worked with 150 musicians from 25 different countries. We went to all of these places and filmed and recorded. But as part of that, I built into it. I managed to get three scholarships for my master's students. And so there were three of my students that came on that whole journey. They came to, to Europe and they recorded. But the main education that they got was seeing me go through that process yeah. and seeing just how hard and traumatic something like that is if you're a creative and you're trying to create this big, very expensive project to see just how low it pushes you and then to see what the resources are that you need within yourself to bring yourself back out of that and succeed. You know, I think it's absolutely a great thing to share that stuff, especially if it's ultimately positive. Well, you guys, thank you so much. This has been so cool. Ben, Caleb, Laurel, thanks so much. And man, John Sappas, this was just wonderful to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much. I really, really enjoyed it. Enjoy the view there at your parents' house and uh, the beautiful, what must be a really inspiring place to be. And we'll see you around. Thank you. Hey, really nice to meet you all. Yeah. Okay. Bye, everybody. You too. See you. Bye.